Amen. The story is told of a woman who lived in a cold weather climate where good food was often scarce and hard to find. She suffered from poor health, and in this particular part of the world, it wasn't easy for her to get the type of nutrition that she needed. So as her health continued to decrease, her doctors recommended that she travel to the tropics. Perhaps the warm weather or the better food would hasten her recovery. And so eventually this woman complied, and a few weeks after arriving in a tropical paradise, she wrote a letter to a friend saying, this is a wonderful spot where I have access to all the good and nutritious food I could ever need. If only I could find my appetite, I'd be well in no time. Within a few weeks, the woman passed away. In the end, it wasn't a lack of food that took her life, but a lack of hunger. Christians in America have access to more spiritual food than we could ever imagine. Books, podcasts, celebrity teachers and preachers, easily accessible online, big churches with big ministries, Christian radio, Christian music, Christian concerts, Christian conferences, and on and on and on we go. Even Christians here at Bacosan Baptist Church, you don't even have to ever leave this church building to have access to more and richer spiritual food than many Christians the world over will see in their entire lives. Think of the preaching that we hear every Sunday morning, the the Bible studies on Sunday night, the Sunday school classes that we have here, the bookstall over there in the corner, fellowship groups, discipleship groups, and on and on we could go. The problem for us as Christians in America, and perhaps for some of us as Christians in this room, is not a lack of spiritual food, but a lack of spiritual hunger. Let me ask you, dear brother, sister, friend, are you hungry for the things of God? If it's true that our greatest problem is not the lack of spiritual food, but a lack of spiritual hunger, if you could say, honestly, I'm not hungry, or, or maybe I'm not as hungry as I want to be or should be, if you would agree with that, that we, we have a lack of spiritual hunger for the things of God, then what should we do about it? Here's the big idea I want to communicate to you this morning from God's Word. The the best way to cultivate a spiritual hunger is to remember who Jesus is and what He came to do. The best way to cultivate spiritual 
hunger is to remember who Jesus is and what he came to do. If you're not already there, I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14. If you're a guest here this morning, our normal practice at Pocosin Baptist Church is to study books of the Bible. And so we, we go kind of a passage at a time, maybe a paragraph, maybe a story, sometimes a chapter, sometimes a phrase, and we go through that portion of Scripture and finish it, and then we come back, we look at the next passage. We've been studying Matthew for nearly a year, and here we are in Matthew chapter 9, quite a ways to go still. If you were with us last Sunday, uh, we watched as the Pharisees approached the disciples to criticize Jesus for eating with the wrong people. This Sunday in our text, the disciples of John approach Jesus to criticize the disciples for eating too much. Last week, the complaint was who you're eating with. This week, the complaint is that you're eating when you should be fasting. But, but underneath the complaints about feasting and fasting in our text this morning, we see an amazing glimpse of who Jesus is and what He came to do. And my prayer is, as you see that in our text this morning, God will awaken in your soul a spiritual hunger like never before. I want to show you, with God's help, from our text, three staggering statements that Jesus makes about who He is and what He came to do. I don't pretend to tell you anything this morning that you haven't already heard, Christian. I don't expect telling you something you didn't already know. The problem for most of us, if we're honest, is not that we haven't heard it, but that it hasn't sunk in or that it's become tired or old. So I pray that the Spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see afresh the beauty of who Jesus is this morning. Three staggering statements Jesus makes. First of all, there's a staggering claim in verses 14 in the first part of verse 15. Look at the text with me. Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? That seems like a valid question. Now, if you were with us back in September of last year, that's when we first met the disciples of John, or John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 3, you remember, if you study the Gospels, you remember that John the Baptist was the forerunner to the ministry of Jesus. He came uh, preaching a baptism of repentance. He came preparing the way for the Lord. And as Jesus begins his ministry, John the Baptist says, he must increase, I must decrease. And as John the Baptist's ministry begins to decrease, he's eventually arrested, he's thrown in prison. We'll get to that story later in Matthew's gospel. But he still has disciples, he still has followers, people that are captivated by John the Baptist's message. And they're following him, and they're following his teachings. And these are, like every other good Jewish boy or girl or man or woman, these folks are fasting, Regularly, it was common practice to fast twice a, day, twice a week. 
to not eat anything for two days during the week as, as just kind of a normal spiritual discipline. And these disciples of John, they're, 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 they're teammates, they're friends of Jesus and his disciples. But they notice that our ministries are really different. Jesus is around the table feasting, and we're over here fasting. What's the big deal? Jesus' response includes a staggering claim about who he is. Look at verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them. Now, that might not seem like much of a question. It might not seem particularly staggering to you this morning, but I want to tell you there is massive, glorious truth in that simple question. First, the implication that Jesus says in this question is that you shouldn't fast when I'm around. Now, that's because fasting for a Jew, fasting in the Old Testament was often marked by sorrow, by brokenness, by repentance. And so you'll see people like the Ninevites in the book of Jonah covering themselves in ashes and sackcloth and fasting as they mourn their sin. Or you'll see David fasting, weeping, mourning as he's praying for God to spare the life of his child. You'll see fasting kind of always associated with sadness with sorrow. And Jesus says, listen to this, Jesus says, when I'm around, it's not time to be sad. Now, think about that for a second. Just imagine, just imagine having the audacity to say to a group of people, listen to me, I don't care what you're going through that's sad. When I'm near you, you don't need to be sad. You imagine saying that. You think of all the brokenness and all the sorrow. Some of you, even just this last week, you have gone through incredible agony and pain. You've gotten incredibly sorrowful news. You're hurting, or maybe there's a long time lingering pain in your life, and it hasn't gone away. You are hurting, and someone comes up to you and says, not when I'm around, you don't hurt. Not when I'm around. When I'm near you, this is not the time to be sad. Now, just pause for a second, and in that comment, there's a glimpse of what awaits all who trust in Christ. The day will come when you will be in His presence, Christian, and you will never be sad again. The things that break your heart this morning will break your heart no longer in the presence of Jesus Christ here physically on the earth with his disciples in Matthew chapter 9, he says, when I'm around, this is not the time for sadness and sorrow. You could say, what about cancer? What about wars? What about corruption? What about tornadoes and tsunamis? And Jesus might reply something like, wait until I leave, and then you'd be sad. That's essentially what he's saying. This is absolutely staggering. But even more mind-blowing is the reason that Jesus gives for why we shouldn't be sad in his presence. Look at the text again. He says, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Have you ever been to a wedding and seen people 
weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth as the bride walks down the aisle. People putting ashes on their head and mourning. And as soon as the wedding's over, there's no big dinner. Everybody's fasting in sorrow over the wedding. That's not normal, right? At a wedding, it's celebration. We, We rejoice. This is exciting. Jesus says, I am the bridegroom, and I'm here, and in my presence, there's no need for sorrow. But what's all this talk about a bridegroom? In the book of Hosea, about 800 years earlier, before this story in Matthew 9, the prophet makes a promise to the people of God. Listen to what he says. It's Hosea chapter 2, verses 16 to 20. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And get this, I will betroth you to me forever, and I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and mercy, and I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. God's people have been separated. They're enduring the the, chastisement of God for their sin, and God says, listen to me, there's a day coming, there's a day coming when you're going to call me husband, and I'm going to be in your presence, and I'm going to marry you, and you're going to be united to me with faithfulness and steadfastness. That day's coming, and Jesus steps on the scene, and he says, it's right now. I'm the bridegroom. I'm the one that came I'm the one that is here to capture the hearts of the people of God. And in my presence, there is feasting and rejoicing because I have come to rescue God's people. That's a staggering claim by Jesus. So if we want to cultivate a a spiritual hunger for God, we, we need to remember how amazing this Jesus is. He is the one that God promised for centuries to capture the hearts of you, dear friend, to captivate you. Are you captivated by this glorious Jesus? It's the first staggering statement that Jesus makes. The second is found in the second half of verse 15. And there we see from Christ a surprising prediction. First, there's a staggering claim. Number two, there's a surprising prediction that Jesus makes. Look at the second half of verse 15. The days will come, Jesus says, when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. In that statement, Jesus makes two Surprising predictions. Number one, Jesus predicts the cross. Jesus predicts the cross. Look at the language again. Jesus says the day is coming when the bridegroom is is taken away from them. That word taken away in the original language carries the idea of, of a sudden, violent removal, like someone being snatched away. Right? My, my baby's been taken away from me. It's violent, forceful. This is clearly an allusion to the cross. 
In fact, an, another form of that exact same word is used in a book called the Septuagint. You might not be familiar with the Septuagint. It's, it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's the Bible that Jesus would have likely read in his day. Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in that book, the exact same word is used in Isaiah 53. It'll be on the screen. Look at Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8. Hundreds of years before this story, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was what? Taken away. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? What's Jesus saying? Jesus saying, the suffering servant that Isaiah wrote about, that's me. I'm here. I'm here to bear in my body the sins of the people of God. I am here to live a sinless life that they cannot live and to die a sinner's death that they deserve to die. By His wounds, we are healed. Jesus is saying, the day is coming when I will be taken away. And at that point, it's time for sadness. But Jesus here is, is, is he's talking about the cross. Now listen to me, brother, sister, Christians in the room. Have you gotten tired of the cross? Are you bored of it? Is it just another old story that you've heard hundreds, if not thousands of times? Does it move you? Does it cause to well up in your soul a, a sorrow for your sin, that it was your sin that nailed him to the cross? Does it cause to well up in your soul a deep and abiding gratitude that God would love the world so much to send his son to die in your place? One of the things I love about the book of Revelation when the saints gather around the throne, it says they gather there in eternity future, some point in the future. All of God's people from every generation will be gathered around the throne to sing a new song to Jesus Christ. And do you know what we sing? The new song, you know what it is? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. In other words, even in heaven, even a trillion years from now, Christians don't get over the cross. We keep singing about it. We keep singing about it. We keep praising God for it. Why? Because that's the only hope that we have. Listen to me. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can try all you want to be good enough. You can't do it. It's not, it's not about being a church member. 
It's not about trying harder. It's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not about being different from the culture. It's not about putting money in the black boxes. It's not about serving. It's not about any of those things. It's about what we sung about earlier. Your faith is in Christ alone and what he did on that cross. Jesus says, come, I'm here. And one of the reasons that I'm here is to bear the sins of my people. The Son of Man will be taken away. Listen to me, friend. Jesus did not die as a hapless, confused victim of Roman oppression. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down. Jesus predicts the cross. Jesus also, in that simple statement, he predicts the church age. Now, the church age, maybe not a term we're very familiar with, the church age is the period of time in human history from the ascension of Jesus when he goes back up into heaven and when he returns. So it's everything between the two appearances of Jesus in clouds, right? He ascends into heaven in clouds, he's coming back in the clouds, everything in between, that's the church age. Jesus predicts the church age in this verse. He says, and then they will fast. The then is referring to now. Every, every generation from when he first went into heaven until when he returns, however long that will be. That's us. That's you and me. That's the then. And then the who. He says, they will fast. Who's, who's he talking about? Everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus, from the first disciples watching him ascend into heaven on the mountain to those who will see him in the clouds when he returns. Now, I don't want to move too quickly past this, brother, sister, friend. Just imagine for a second somebody coming to PBC for membership And those of you, most of you here that are members, you know, when you come here for membership, you sit down, you have a membership interview, you talk with some of our pastors, we listen to you, we ask you questions like, what's the gospel? Tell us how you became a Christian, that sort of thing. Now, I want you to imagine that we're sitting down with somebody for a membership interview, and the person says, listen, I'm only going to be here for a little while. Well, that's fine. We hear that sort of stuff quite a lot, being in a military area. Folks are with us for a little while. But imagine the person says, while I'm here... You guys are going to have amazing potlucks. The feasts are going to be incredible. The food's going to be amazing. But then, when I leave, you won't ever have another potluck like that again, as long as this church remains. That seems a little silly, right? But you get the the audacity in a statement like that to say, listen, I'm going to have all these followers after I leave and this massive impact that totally changes the way you do business once I'm gone. That's what Jesus is saying in this text. He's saying, when I leave, there's going to be followers that still follow me. And here we are 2,000 years later, and there are Christians all over the world today in every language you can imagine, gathering and worshiping Jesus. Jesus predicts the age of the church. Again, before we move on to the final stunning statement that Jesus makes this morning, I want to stop and think about what this means for you and me. 
This is, in this text, the closest thing that you'll find to a commandment to fast in the New Testament. You won't find a verse that says, thou shalt fast in the New Testament. This is the closest thing you get. Jesus says, when I leave, my disciple is not might fast, will fast. He doesn't say, when I leave, some of my disciples will fast, you know, the super spiritual ones. Certainly not the Baptists. I mean, we do potlucks. We are not known for our fasting. He says, when I leave, my disciples will fast. That's why in the book of Acts, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll notice the earliest Christians will occasionally fast. They'll take time away from food to pray. Focus on their relationship with God. You'll see it throughout church history. John Calvin, Martin Luther, Jonathan Edwards, the Wesleys, and much more talk about the value and the importance of Christian fasting. Do you really want to say about this verse, Jesus says, when I leave, then they will fast? Do you really want to say, well, he wasn't talking about me? Do we want to say that, Christian? Let me remind you of what we said a few months ago when we looked at fasting in Matthew chapter 6. This is from Donald Whitney. Donald Whitney, in his book on the spiritual discipline, says that fasting is a Christian's voluntary abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. I know that perhaps many of you have been taught that fasting can be a fasting from any sort of thing. You can fast from, you know, sriracha sauce on your, uh, your stir-fry. You can fast from your favorite show or whatever. Uh, you, you certainly can do that, and there might be value in doing those things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with Dr. Whitney here. I think that biblical fasting is an abstinence from food. Not so you can lose weight, not so you can get some sort of health benefits, but so that you might draw near to God. Now, I'm not going to say a whole lot more about fasting as a spiritual discipline. If you want to, if you weren't here uh, back in May, I would encourage you to go to the website and listen to that sermon on fasting from May the 15th. Uh, you can go back and listen to that. Hopefully, we offered some practical guidance on how to fast. But, but here's a, a takeaway I want you to get, Christian. Listen to me. Spiritual hunger takes discipline. The staff met on Thursday, and I challenged our staff here at PBC. Nobody coasts towards Christlikeness. You will not drift to godliness, ever. You put your, your soul, your heart, your mind on autopilot, guaranteed you will drift towards sin every single time. Spiritual hunger, spiritual growth takes discipline. Let me ask you, Christian, followers of Jesus in this room, are you disciplining yourself for godliness? Listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable 
So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You ever watch some of the interest stories about Olympians? what the athletes go through to discipline themselves to play at that level of competition. That's the analogy that Paul's using here. He's saying, listen, if you want to be holy, it's going to take incredible discipline. Can I just, let me just help us think about this as a church for a moment. Think about even some of the things that we do every week when we gather. We, we praise God for His attributes, why do we do that? Well, because we, the, the Scriptures are clear that that's a good thing to do, and yet, if we're honest, if we're really honest, we don't think about that very often. We confess specific sins, and every week we have a sin that we're asking one of our members to lead us in a confession in. Now, we could just say, hey, come up and confess whatever sin you want to confess, and that would be fine. There'd be nothing wrong with that. But we actually think there's value in thinking through specific types of sin that we probably wouldn't confess unless someone was disciplining us and leading us in that. I wonder how many of us would take the time to reflect on the sin of judgmentalism if not for our brother Jeremy leading us so well in that earlier. Do you see the point? Disciplining ourselves for godliness or, or the, the prayer that our pastors lead before the sermon where we think about other churches, think about other nations, think about social ills in our country, think about our political leaders, and we pray for them. Why do we do that? The Scriptures command it. And how many of us wouldn't do those things apart from that discipline in our lives to help us grow? Here's the point, Christian. You will not grow apart from discipline. Now, there's a, there's a danger here, isn't there? Because it is very possible to be very disciplined and very far from God isn't it? Maybe that's you today. Maybe you are disciplined. And yet, for you, all of the spiritual disciplines that are a part of your life are simply empty shells that don't draw your heart near to Christ. The solution is not to throw off a discipline like Bible reading or prayer or church attendance, but to say, God, forgive me yet again. My heart is so wicked. I need you. Would you help me? Grow in hunger for you. Fasting, abstinence from food for spiritual purposes, is a discipline, and it's hard, and it hurts. So too with every spiritual discipline. But we do it so that we might grow in our hunger for God. Let me show you one final stunning statement that Jesus makes in our text this morning. Finally, I want you to see a sweeping implication. In verses 16 and 17, Jesus gives two illustrations to make one point. Let me explain the point that Jesus is making, and then let me show you the illustrations. Here's the point. The, the old forms of Judaism cannot contain the newness of the kingdom. 
That's the point. The old forms of Judaism cannot contain the newness of the kingdom. Here's two illustrations that Jesus uses. The first is in verse 16. He says, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. I was thinking about that verse uh, as I was preparing this morning, and it dawned on me, a lot of our younger people would have no idea what's happening in verse 16. Um, There was a time when people didn't intentionally buy clothes with holes in them. Um, And there was a time even long before that when your clothes got holes in them, and, and to save money, to be thrift, uh, thrifty, we would patch our clothes, right? Raise your hand if you've patched any clothes recently. Some of you, you're like, wait a minute, no, no, no. Anybody, some of you, some of you? Hand? Was there a hand? No? Yes? Okay. Yeah, we don't do that anymore, right? We're, what do we do with the clothes that need patched? Goodwill. <laughs> Trash can, right? That's what we do. There was a day... Uh, for many, many, many centuries, if not millennia, when not just God's people, everybody, because they didn't have a lot of resources, because clothes were expensive, they took a lot of time to, to make, you, know, they, you get a hole in something, you don't, you, know, you, don't, you don't wear it as new fashion, you patch it up. You don't throw it away, you patch it up. And, and Jesus' point is, listen, if you've got an old garment an old cloth, and it's shrunk. You know how fabric shrinks over time, right? This is already shrunk. You wouldn't take a new piece of fabric that hasn't been shrunk and patch it on the old piece of cloth. Why? Because eventually that patch is going to shrink, and it's going to rip off of that garment, and it's going to make the tear worse. Get the picture, right? So that's what Jesus is saying. He, and he's saying this to, to get, get the point across that, that Christianity is more than a patch on Judaism. Everything in the old covenant was given to us to point to the new covenant. The point of the New Testament is not that, you know, the old covenant wasn't working, Judaism wasn't working, so let's get our Jesus patch and patch it up, now it's good. No, Jesus says, this is a new garment. This is something radically different and new. It's connected to the old, but the, forms of, the old forms of Judaism cannot contain the newness of the kingdom. That's what Jesus is saying. He makes the same point in verse 17. Uh, Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Again, this is something we don't think about a lot. Wine skins were, were ancient bottles made out of the skin of various animals, and old wine skins had already been stretched to the limit. So you actually put the, the fruit of the vine into the wine skin, and it ferments over time and becomes wine. But as it ferments, the bottle expands, the skin stretches, and you use that wine, and the wine skin's not really good anymore. You wouldn't put new wine that hasn't yet fermented into an old wineskin because as the wine begins to ferment and expand, guess what happens to that wineskin? It cracks, it bursts, and your skin's ruined, and so is your wine. Jesus says, Christianity, it's not about pouring a little bit of Jesus into the old forms of Judaism, this is something new and better. The the old forms of Judaism cannot contain the newness of the kingdom. What what exactly does that mean? 
What does it mean practically? Well, think about the example in the text of fasting. Jesus is not doing away with fasting entirely or forever. He doesn't say, I'm here now. We don't need any of that old stuff anymore. What he does say is that fasting for a Christian is going to be different. I told you earlier that Old Testament fasting was marked by sadness and sorrow. There was this deep longing for the Messiah to come and set everything right. When is he going to come? When is he going to get here? When is he going to do the things that he promised? There's this longing for the Messiah to come. And Jesus says, in, in Christian fasting, it's similar, but it's new. How is it new? We've already tasted and seen that the Messiah has come and he's good. So we fast not with a a sorrow or a sadness, but with a hopeful longing for him to return. Here's the best way I can illustrate it. I could tell you right now how amazing the churros are in Mexico City. And boy, they're amazing. But most of you who've never been there and never tasted them are probably thinking, it's a churro. It's fine, you know? I mean, I don't even like churros. Or, you know, uh, I mean, they're okay. They're pretty much the same as those little cinnamon crunchies that you get at Taco Bell in a little bag, you know? That's basically a cut-up churro. It's really nothing to write home about. And and, and you're not going to have in your and your soul a deep longing for a Mexico City churro unless you go there and taste one. And when you do, and you taste it, and you see that it's good, and it's glorious, and it's the best churro that's ever been conceived, and in fact, whatever we call a churro here doesn't even compare to the churro there. There's a hunger that wells up inside of you. Why? Because you've tasted it. Christian, if you have believed the gospel and you have tasted that Christ is good and glorious, you don't fast with sadness and sorrow and longing for something you haven't yet experienced. You fast saying, Jesus, I want you to come back. I've tasted your goodness. I've seen how amazing you are. Come back. I want to see you face to face. That's what Christian fasting looks like. So when we read our Old Testament's Christian, when we read most of this Bible, we read it through the lens of the New Testament, through the lens of what Jesus came and what He did, because He says, listen, listen to me, people, I'm not just a little bit of Jesus sprinkled on top the old ways. I'm bringing about a new and better garment, a new and better wineskin, a new and better covenant. And all the old stuff was pointing to this. Taste and see that He is good. I began this morning with a story about a woman who died not because of a lack of food, but a lack of hunger. When a woman named Carrie died at 33 years old in England, her death was different 
for her, it wasn't a lack of hunger that killed her, but hunger for the wrong things. For years, she lived almost exclusively on junk food, uh, leading her to develop a stem cell disorder, bone marrow failure, and severe anemia until her body was completely depleted of folic acid and vitamin B12, and she passed away in her sleep. It could be that some of us in this room are not hungry for Jesus because we're hungry for the wrong things. Remember when you were little, and it'd be like 4 o'clock or whatever time right before dinner, you start to get hungry, and you asked your mom, can I just have a little snack? And what did she say? You'll ruin your what? Ruin your appetite. This woman literally ruined her appetite for everything good because she feasted on what was not good. I wonder in this room if for some of us, the issue is not that there's no hunger at all, but we have so feasted our eyes and our minds and our hearts on the junk food of this world that cannot satisfy. I don't even mean sinful things, just trivial things. Things that we can receive with gladness. Things that we can rejoice in. And yet, as C.S. Lewis said, we are far too easily pleased and far too easily our appetites are satisfied by things that will not ultimately give us life. Is that you, friend? It could be that there's someone here that you have never yet tasted and seen that the Lord is good. If that's you this morning, we would invite you before you leave if you're interested, to head to the white flag after the service, talk to one of our pastors who will be there. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But most of us in this room are Christians. And to the Christians in this room, I would plead with you, are you hungry for God? Is your appetite being ruined by things that will not satisfy Will you look at the greatness and the glories of who Jesus is and what he came to do and say, that's what I want. Jesus, please let me run to you. If you do that, he'll receive you today. Would you pray with me? Father,